If you have your Bible, open up to Acts chapter 8. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one in the seat in front of you that you can grab that and accompany along with us and verify that what is being said is truly from God's word. I want you to finish this idea for me while you're turning to Acts chapter 8. The problem with power is that it, what? Corrupts. The problem with power is that it goes to your head. We often look at people who come into power, that receive power, and how often do we see their story and either it corrupts them, it takes them and they misunderstand the position that they were placed in. How often do we see this, whether it's police officers or politicians? And obviously this is not everyone, but how often are we able to observe, wow, that power really went fast to their head. Oh man, you gave them a little bit of authority, you gave them a little bit of something and it corrupted their heart. That's often what we think about when we see people who have received power. But then there's another side of things that we often think as well. What a waste. Man, that person had all of this power. They had all of this at their disposal. And what did they do use it for? Maybe to further their own kingdom. Maybe to do something for themselves. But man, we we elected you. We, we put you in this place to, to help our country. We gave you this power and you changed nothing. Do you ever find yourself thinking those things when you, when you look at someone who has received power, who has received these things and think either they're corrupt or it's just a waste that the power was given to them? I, I do. Here's part of the problem though with power. How many of us think that we are susceptible to the same things? Isn't it weird where we're like, oh man, I'm not sure that person should get power because it'll probably corrupt them or it's a waste for them. I should get power though. I'm fine with a little bit of an extra dose. If you want to pour that out on me, that would be a good thing. I would be a good steward of that power. But that's the problem. We think about everyone else is easily corrupt, everyone else easily wastes, but we will be good stewards. What have we seen in the book of Acts? Where does the book begin? All the way back in chapter one, verse eight. And you will receive what? Power from the Holy Spirit. For what? To be my witnesses. I think we've gone through enough of the book of Acts for us to repeat that with a little more gusto. You will receive power from the Holy Spirit to be my witnesses from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. What is implied in that is that there is a purpose for the power. And that power, if we could borrow from what was made famous with uh, the Spider-Man movies and Uncle Ben saying, with great power comes great responsibility. We all know it. We talk about it all the time, but it's true. With great power comes great responsibility. There's a privilege that comes with power. There's a purpose for that power. 
And Acts is very clear. But when we think about the problem of power, it's how often it corrupts us, how often we waste it. And that story begins all the way at the beginning of the Bible. What does Satan tempt humanity with? Hey, you can be like God. You you can take this. Did humanity in that moment see the position, the privilege of the power you will that to exercise dominion over the whole earth? Did they see what had been given to them, that they were in the image of God, that he created them in his image? Did they see all of that and say, wait, therefore, our position is to serve this power, to serve and use the power that was given to us to accomplish that purpose? Or did they say, no, actually, I think I'd like to be Lord of the power. I think I would like rather to be partners with God. I think I'd rather be on the same level. And that problem has continued till this day that every time that we are given power, we are easily corrupted, we easily waste it. But this morning we're gonna see in our passage how God would have us use the power he's given us we are also going to see a warning in the way that power should not be in our lives. We are going to see a warning against those who lust after power and positions not given to us. Here's our big idea. Seek to serve in power, not be the Lord of power. Seek to serve in power. We have this power. We should use it. Serve in power. Don't seek to be the Lord of power. Go ahead and look at your Bible, and we're going to look at this first paragraph of Acts chapter 8, verses 4 through 8. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them. And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. What are we seeing in this first paragraph? If you were here with us last week, we we know that we're in a a transition. We're in a new season of the book of Acts. Season one happened all in Jerusalem. Season one was that first time we're in Pentecost where the Holy Spirit comes upon the apostles. And we see everything that happens there until the point that we have persecution. And it ends on this cliffhanger with Stephen dead. Then season two starts, as we heard Diane read earlier, season two starts with great trials great tragedies, but God uses it to take the people where he wants them to be so that they might do what they are meant to do. Where has he taken them? Out to Samaria. And look at what they're doing. They were scattered to Samaria and Judea and went about preaching the word. What we're first seeing is this general truth that this is what the church is doing. They are preaching God's word. Why? Because they know that's their purpose. You will receive what? Power to be my. The power has a purpose. 
And they're doing it. Then Luke is going to give us a specific account. He's going to say, now, not we're just, we've already stated that they're all doing it, but let's look at someone specific. Let's look at one person and what they're doing. Let's look at Philip. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. Now, who is Philip? Now, there's a little confusion here, not with the actual text, but we, we know other Philips in the Bible. There's the apostle Philip. That's not who this is. We first met this Philip a little bit before in chapter 6. Turn real quick to the beginning of chapter 6. As Luke is often prone to do, he, he introduces people and then doesn't talk much about them for a long time until he brings them back in the story. We're going to see the same thing with Barnabas. We're seeing the same thing with Saul. But here, and he did the same thing with Stephen. Look at what it says. Verse 5. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. Who are these people? Who are these seven that were picked? They're servants. These are people that the church has looked at and said, we recognize that you are men full of wisdom. You are men full of the Holy Spirit. We want you helping serve our church in the midst of this problem where there's division and there's complaining and there's people being neglected in the daily distribution. They picked Philip. What we already know about the character of Philip is Philip is a servant. Philip takes what God gives him and he uses it to serve others. And what's he doing here? The crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. What are we seeing here? Philip is acting with great as he proclaims and witnesses. Philip is taking what God has given him and using it the way God has told him. And all the people are watching. Now, we're not going to get right now into all the results of, of whether they believe or not. That's coming in the next paragraph, which we'll address soon. But first, what I want us to observe is that Philip is obeying God, but also recognize, where is this happening? Samaria, where God told them to go. But if you've been around the church for a while, if you've studied your Bible, Samaria should be something that you've heard about. You might think of a, a famous story that, that Jesus talked about. Maybe you think of certain um, ministry organizations named the Good Samaritan, Samaritan's Purse. We, we, we talk about this. Well, nowadays we kind of talk about like, oh yeah, like this, this lofty thing of like, oh, I, if you might even say, man, you're, you're a, a Samaritan. And we might even think of that as a compliment. Not in the Bible, not back then. The times that Samaria is brought up, there's immense conflict. When, when Jesus tells the, the parable of the Good Samaritan, it's to shock the people. Wait a second. The protagonist, the hero of the story, is a Samaritan? That doesn't make sense. When Jesus goes and, and is with the woman at the well and, and he's telling her not on this mountain 
when, when they're saying, look, my, our fathers worship on that, this mountain here in Samaria because, well, we're not allowed in Jerusalem. We're not allowed to go worship there. We, we have been separated. The Samaritans were people that in the many times that God brought, uh, exiled the, the children of Israel, sometimes there were people who remained and they did the most despicable thing in the eyes of the people. They intermarried. And to be true, God had told them not to do that. But now these people are less than dirt. But Philip is going and preaching to them because he knows that's what God has told him to be. You will be my witnesses. And we see that God is allowing him to use great power in the signs and wonders that he's doing. Unclean spirits, we're talking about demons, crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them. And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. Here's what I want us to see about Philip. God gives us power that we might serve his mission. Why does God give us power? Is it just where he's like, you know what? I have so much extra. Go ahead, take some. Here's some power to you. Here's some power to you. Let me see what you do, you're gonna do with it. Be creative. No. God gives us power for a specific purpose. He says, I have a plan. You're part of that plan. But the reason I'm giving it to you is that you might serve my mission. And that's what Philip is doing. Here's a question for us. Are we embracing the mission with the power we've been given? Do we recognize that God has given us a precious gift, a great power? We have the Holy Spirit. Do we recognize that God has given us that for a purpose? When we talked earlier and we said, you know, the problem of power, we look at other people who have received power and we're like, man, what a waste. Maybe it corrupted. Are we susceptible to that? Well, evaluate for yourself. Are you using the power that God has given you to accomplish the mission God has called you to do? Last week, we talked about how trials, God uses trials to take us where he wants us to be that we might do what he wants us to do. If you're where God has called you to be, are you doing what God has called you to do? I want to, if, if I could just use an illustration, um, even before we were talking about, I, I, I enjoy fantasy, genre, the fantasy genre of books and reading through those. And, and many of you have, have read them and often you have the protagonist given some gift that often they, they don't really know how they're supposed to use it. If it's the Chronicles of Narnia, it, it's these, when, when Father Christmas comes and he gives them a bow and he gives Lucy something that is in the little bottle and she get a sword, but they're not yet sure how they're supposed to use it. What if in the, you read the whole book and those gifts never come back up? You'd be a little disappointed. You're like, wait a second. No, like that was presented. This was something that was really important. That gift was given. Or, or the kids, if you ever watch, 
any like kids TV show, how often it's like, okay, at the very beginning, they get four items. And as the episode goes through, they have to figure out how they're going to use, is it time to use the rope? Or is it time to use the shovel? Or is it time to use the map? And you're like, oh, use the map. (laughs) What if they just ignored them? God's given us a special gift. What if we go through our whole life and never use that gift he's given us? It'd be a waste. If God gives us power that we might serve his mission, are we using it for that? Serve the Lord in his power. Let's continue and and see how we need to humbly proclaim Christ that he might be glorified. Look, Look at how the people respond in verse 9 through 13. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. Notice the contrasting conjunction that, that Luke starts this with. He talked about Philip. He talked about what Philip is doing. And then how does verse 9 start? But. Meaning this is different. There's going to be some similarities, but there's also some contrast. But there was a man named Simon. So who, who's Luke introducing us to? Simon the magician. Now, it's not something that we regularly come across in Scripture. What, what, what are we talking about? Magic? What, what is this? Well, this is not talking about sleight of hand. This is not talking about an illusionist. This is talking about the occult. What did Philip do at the end of last paragraph? What are we seeing? We're seeing demons be sent out. We need to recognize, and and something that we don't often talk about, but we are in a spiritual war. There is power that is given from God, but there is also the power of the prince of the air who leads the sons of disobedience, meaning Satan. And there are things that are supernatural, more than natural, that don't just come from God. Practices that are demonic, practices of the occult. We see them as they opposed God in in Egypt where the magicians are coming alongside and trying to stand up against Moses as God has told him what signs he is meant to do and Aaron. So we see that they not only oppose God, but we also see that God opposes them. This is what Deuteronomy 18 says as a warning to the Israelites, as God is telling them, he says this, when you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominable practices of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering, anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer or one who inquires of the dead. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. When we're talking about this, because I want you to notice the similarity. What did it say earlier 
of how the people responded in verse 6 to Philip. The crowds with one accord, what? Paid attention. Because they're seeing some incredible signs that Philip is doing. How have they responded to Simon? Verse 10, they all paid attention to him. Verse 11, and they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. There's some similarities here. On the surface level, it looks like you have two guys who are demonstrating power. People are watching. What's going to happen? This is a spectacular show. But I want you to notice a contrast. As Philip has done these things, who has he revealed is great? As Philip has used the power, what, for what purpose has he brought and demonstrated power to these people? To point to God. He's doing it through God's power. What does Simon say? He himself, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. Simon's doing these things for whose glory? For his own. When Adam and Eve chose to eat the fruit, for whose glory, whose glory were they seeking? Their own. We're seeing this contrast, but here's the fascinating part of this passage. Power isn't going to transform anyone. It's the word that transforms. They're all amazed. They're all watching. They're all seeing what Simon does. Their lives are the same. Why? How do we know that? Well, because Philip had to send out demons. Things were not good. So how do they respond to Philip? But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip, and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Notice again the contrasting conjunction at the beginning of verse 12. But they respond to Philip in a way they have never responded to Simon. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Don't miss this. What truly transformed the people was not the power perceived. It was the gospel received. People are transformed through the word received, not miracles perceived. Don't look at this story and think, wow, okay, God's given me power. I need to start going out there and healing people. I need to go out and start, start uh, casting out demons. That, that's the role that God has given me. God has done that at times in scripture to confirm the message of what is being shared. Jesus Christ himself did that to say, I really am who I say I am. Philip is being given this power so that he can demonstrate the truth of the word. But what transforms people? Have they already seen power from Simon? Did it transform them? No, they saw power and were still going to hell. 
What transformed them was the gospel received. What do we think has the power to transform lives? Do you you ever think that maybe God just didn't give you enough of the special sauce? Oh man, if I had the powers of observation of that seminary professor, if I had the eloquence of that pastor, if I had the, the creativity of that children's director, if I had the intellect of that apologist, if, if I could, could uh, if I had the boldness of that evangelist, then we're like, oh man, God just didn't give me enough of the power. What has the power to transform? Have you been given it? See, it's not going to be the the actions we do, the miracles we perform. What's going to transform people is the gospel received. Can you go to someone and tell them about a holy and powerful God who made all of this earth? Can you tell them about the condition of humanity's heart that we are separated from that holy God because of our sin and we are destined to an eternity of hell? Can we tell them about Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, who came to this earth, who lived a perfect life, who died the death that we deserve, who went on the cross, who took on our sins, but then on the third day rose again, conquering death? Can we tell them that all who respond to that, who repent of their sins, who place their faith in Jesus Christ, they are given the right to be called the children of God, They are given life in Christ. They receive power from the Spirit. Can you say that? Let's try again. Can you say that? You have all the power you need. You have all the power you need. You will receive to be my witnesses. This is what we're seeing here. How often we think that greater power is found in what we don't have to the point of neglecting the greatest power we already have. Don't make a mistake. Can we grow? Can we use wisdom? Can we think of how we can best explain? Can we challenge ourselves? Hey, call a brother or sister and say, hey, can I share the gospel with you? I I know you're already a Christian, but can I share it with you? Is it clear what I'm saying? Yes, we can do that. We should improve. I regularly ask people to help me evaluate my messages. Was this clear? I want to get better, but understand all of that is not where the power is. The power is in God's word. The power is in the Holy Spirit. But there's a question that we have here at the end of this passage, especially if you've already heard earlier the whole passage read or you've looked at this. What about Simon? What's going on with Simon? Because at the end of this right here, it says, even Simon himself believed. It sounds like Simon is baptized believing. What's going on here? And I want to just use a quick metaphor. This is a peek behind the curtain. I was talking to um, Andrew Taft earlier this week and talking about this. When we're, if you were to think about a sermon as a path that we're walking along together, and I'm going with you, sometimes we come across a log that's fallen across the path. 
And, and there's certain questions where we're like, okay, I'm not sure about this. Was Simon a Christian or not? And if you're not already asking that question, you probably will be by the time we get to the end of the passage. And, and sometimes there's a temptation for the pastor to spend hours and hours figuring out this one conversation, looking at all of these different commentaries. But the reality is sometimes you just need to step over the log and keep walking. Here's why. Whether Simon was or was not a genuine Christian does not change at all the meaning of the text. What is the purpose of Simon in this text? It's a warning against those who would lust after power. If he's a Christian, it's a warning. If he's not a Christian, it's a warning. And so quite frankly, we're not going to spend any more time on whether or not Simon was a Christian. Deal? Yes. Moving on. Let's see what happens because now we come to this warning. Beware the pride that corrupts your heart and purpose. We see the receiving of the Spirit, looking at verse 14. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. What we're seeing here is that the apostles are finding out about this and they're traveling because what we saw in our last week's passage, where were the apostles still? Jerusalem. The church has been scattered except for the apostles. The apostles hear about what Philip is doing. Maybe they have some concerns because this is Samaria, but they're going to say, okay, let's send Peter and John there. And Peter and John arrive and they pray for them to receive the Spirit and lay their hands on them because they had not yet received it. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. You remember that metaphor I just talked about where a log is across the path and sometimes we just need to step over it? Sometimes we need to get out the chainsaw and say, let's go to work. We need to cut this and we need to remove the log so that we can keep walking. That's this time. Because we look at this and we're saying, wait a second. Um, they had believed in Jesus Christ. They had been baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, but they did not receive the Holy Spirit. That's a little concerning to me. Do, does the Spirit only come by the laying on of hands? Do we need an apostolic succession team where it goes from Peter onto another person and they keep on picking people so that this person can lay the spirit on us? What's going on here? We need to address that. Here's the first thing that I want us to understand. Within the story of scripture, there are certain times in which there, is, there are transition points. Throughout the Old Testament, how did people, how were they saved? What does it say about Abraham? He had faith and it was counted to him as righteousness. How was Abraham saved? By faith. Did Abraham have faith that one day Jesus Christ was going to come and die on the cross for his sins? You know, he didn't know all of that. Did he have faith that God had a plan that would substitute, would cover his sins? He had faith. He had faith in what had been revealed to him. For us, we have more given to us and there will be an element where we need to have faith in something very specific because that is what has been given. But even thinking about this, in the Old Testament, did believers have always the Holy Spirit? No. 
That is something special that Jesus says in the gospels and says, listen, I'm going to give you something special. When I leave, I'm going to send this helper. It's to your advantage for me to go or else the helper will not come. So between what is the transition books from the Old Testament to the New Testament? The gospels. We have a transition where we see where Jesus is revealing the truth. He's giving them the good news. But even then, if we zoom in on the New Testament, between the Gospels and the rest of the book, uh, the rest of the books in the New Testament, the epistles, we also have a transition. What's the transition? Acts. Acts is a transition book where we're going from one thing to another, and we're going to see how specific God was in how he poured out his spirit. Because what does the spirit do? It confirms the truth of what people have received. Right at the beginning, in our first season of the book of Acts, what were the disciples waiting for? For 10 days after Christ had already ascended. What were they doing in that room? Ted Boykin preached the message for us. What were, what were they waiting for? The Holy Spirit talks about they were still being obedient they were waiting they were praying but then the holy spirit comes and what does that holy spirit do they go out and they proclaim there's signs it is evident there's something visual visible that they can see that the holy spirit like tongues of fire is on them but up till now we've stayed in jerusalem but god said i my plan is for this to also go to samaria and now it's spreading to samaria but the leaders of the church where are they in jerusalem And if God wants them to see what he's doing, how might he prove to the apostles, how might he show them, I'm doing something even in Samaria? For there to be a pause until they got there so that they could observe and witness what is happening. Go back to Jerusalem and say, God is doing something greater than we imagined. We are okay with Hellenists and Hebrews being part of this, but Samaritans? How would God prove, Peter, this church, these sheep that you're meant to feed while we were walking on the beach and I told you to feed my sheep, you want to know who those sheep are? It's not just going to be the Jews. How would he show them that? So that when he arrived, they could see the Holy Spirit coming on them. Now, just two times doesn't prove a pattern. What would we need to have a pattern? We'd need at least one more. Well, guess what happens in Acts 10? In Acts 10... Peter is told to go to the Gentiles. Okay, one step is, you know, Hebrews and Hellenists. Okay, maybe. A bigger step out from that is Samaritans. A way bigger step out from that is what? Gentiles, us. And so God says, Peter, I'm sending you somewhere. I'm gonna give you this vision. I'm gonna tell you that Gentiles are part of the plan. And when, gen- when he gets there, what is it that proves to Peter that this is legitimately what God is doing. This is what it says in, John, in Acts 10, 44 through 48. I'm gonna read a, a, a bigger portion of this. While Peter was still saying these things, he's talking, he's proclaiming Christ to the Gentiles, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word and the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? 
and he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. We're seeing the same thing happening here. Peter is seeing the evidence that God has saved them. But beyond that, what we see in Acts 11, when Peter returns to Jerusalem, this is what he says to the Jerusalem church. He's telling the story. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. And I remember the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us who we, when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God saying, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. The transition, why Luke has this element where we're like, man, this order seems weird, is that God in his sovereignty says, wait, I want this church to be one. I don't want there to be a Samaritan church and the Jerusalem church where they're like, well, we don't really know if they're Christians. We receive the Holy Spirit, but we, I don't know about them. No, he says, I want the church to bear witness to the work that I'm doing. And so we see that. So the question then for us is, is this how it still happens? Do we still need to have someone lay their hands on us like the apostles? Or is it still possible for someone to come to faith, to believe and be baptized without also receiving the Holy Spirit? No. That finished with the book of Acts. 2 Corinthians 1, 20 through 22. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to, to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Who is the one that gives us the Holy Spirit? Is it apostles? No, it's God. When do we receive the Spirit? Ephesians 1, 13 through 14. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him. So when is it happening? When you believed, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of your inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Put the chain sound down. We got to path through this now. Okay. No, this is not how it's always going to be. But this is what God was doing because it's part of the bigger plan that's happening in Acts. Here's what I want us to understand from this. God's message is inclusive of any who believe, but exclusive to only those who believe. What do I mean by that? It includes God's mission, God's plan, God's message is inclusive Anyone who believes in it is included, even Samaritans, even Gentiles. But it is exclusive to only those who believe. Who received the Spirit in this passage? Only those who believed in Jesus Christ. This is something that we, it's crucial for us to know as we go out in power to proclaim Christ. It must be made clear to people that there is a line that separates those who are in Christ and those who are not. We do not help anyone in just being inclusive. We also do not help people by excluding those whom God would include. It is inclusive 
of any who believe. We don't get to choose. I'm not gonna share the gospel with that person. I don't like them. I don't think that they should be part of God's mission. That's not our choice. But we need to also not include people whom God has excluded. We don't get to say, I don't really care about your testimony. You can join our church. If you're a member here, you receive testimonies from people who are looking to become our members at our church. What are we looking for? Have they placed their faith in Jesus Christ alone? Because if they haven't, it is no help for, to them for us to say, yeah, you're included, come on in. That line must be made clear because that's what God does. Continue on what we see at the very end of this passage, if you jump all the way down to verse 25, is that Peter and John got it. They understood that God was including the Samaritans because what did they do on their way back to Jerusalem in verse 25? Peter and John, when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. They got it. God's message is inclusive to any who would believe, but exclusive to only those who believe. We jump now to see Simon's request because this is where we're going to really find the warning. Verses 18 through 19. Now when Simon saw that the spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, give me this power also so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may, I, may receive the Holy Spirit. Simon's seeing this new type of power and Simon completely misunderstood. See, here's Simon's assumption. If you come to me, and if, let's say, after the service, a bunch of kids come up and they just see me pulling out my wallet and giving $100 bills out, what they, might they assume about me and how big my bank account is? Oh, man, you, that, that, what do we pay it for at this church? <laughs> they might assume all these things about me, but what if, what if someone else had given me that money and say, hey, I want to bless the church. Would you do this? The wrong assumption is thinking, oh man, Stephen must be loaded. The right assumption is to say, well, maybe Stephen has someone behind him who has a bank that is inexhaustible. They look at, Simon looks at these apostles and says, wait, you guys are choosing who gets the power of the Holy Spirit. Oh, you're a power over the Holy Spirit. Does that make sense? Yeah, that, that's what he's seeing. We know that because of what he requests. Give me this power also. What Simon is requesting here is make me the Lord of, with power over the Lord of power. Give me the right that gets to choose who does and does not get the Holy Spirit. Let me decide how this is going to happen. Is that what the apostles were doing? Were the apostles coming to, to Samaria and say, God, I, I know that you kind of are thinking about this. I don't know. We'll evaluate if we get there and we think that they're okay, I guess we can give them the Holy Spirit too. But God, just please give us some time to evaluate and figure this out. That's not what the apostles are doing. The apostles are going as servants of the Lord. They're saying we are serving the Lord of power and he has told us to lay our hands so that they receive the Holy Spirit. Those who seek to be, the, be Lord of the power do not serve the Lord of power. Simon thought to be the Lord over the power. Simon didn't want to be a servant. Simon wanted to be the savior.
are we tempted to do the same? When we think of how important of a role God has given us, when, when we looked at last week, we talked about Colossians 1, when Paul is saying things like, I am going to fill up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions, meaning that I am going to be the visual representation. I am going to want, be the one that takes the message of Christ and the mission and takes it forward. Can we fall into the trap of saying, oh, I'm a big deal? How often do we, we even slip up and say, well, this is how many people I've brought to salvation. I've never brought anyone to salvation. I have been blessed that God has allowed me to proclaim Christ whom he chose to save. That's very different. I am not the savior. You are not the savior. It is not you to say, I will give power to this person. I can choose who will and will not be, be accepted by Christ. No, our job is to serve the Lord of power, not to be Lord over the power. I think that's one of the dangers, but I think there's another danger that we need to learn from Simon here because we might look at that and say, look, Stephen, I'm aware I'm not Christ. I'm aware I'm not in that position. I know who the Lord of power is. But there's another way that we seek to be Lord over the power by choosing that we will not use it. See, if I go to my son, Jack, and then let's continue the $100 idea, and I say, Jack, Here's $100, go buy groceries. Probably get you three gallons of milk. Go buy groceries. And Jack takes that money and says, I'm going to go buy video games. Or Jack says, I don't feel like it. I'm just going to leave it in my pocket. What has Jack decided that he's in charge of? What I've told him to do. Dad, that's your plan, but that's not my plan. I'm Lord over what I'm going to do. If, the God, if God has given us power... And we say, I'm just going to store this in my pocket. I'm going to use it to do other things. What are we effectively saying? I'm Lord of the power. We're not called to be Lord of the power. We're called to serve the Lord of power. Are we seeking to be the Lord of the power or are we seeking to serve the Lord of power? Look at Peter's rebuke. But Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter for your heart is not right before God. Repent therefore of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if at all possible the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come to you, upon me. Again, I don't know if Simon's a genuine Christian or not. But what's the warning here? Thirst for power corrupts and hinders our purpose in God's plan. When we make it about us, when we think that, man, I get to choose how this power is going to be, I'm going to, we want more, we lust after this, that hinders our purpose in God's plan. Are we allowing power to corrupt us? Are we allowing it to hinder our purpose? How many people have destroyed their ministry because of their lust of power? Let's start on a low level. Parents, you have power over your children. Is it corrupting you? Are you wasting it? 
How do we talk to our children? How do we have the responsibility that God has called us to minister, to be witnesses to our children, to point them to Christ? How often do we see this in churches? Pastors who take this position of power and abuse it. How often, how, like, if I was someone that was regularly online and looking for these things, I think I wouldn't go more than a day of finding someone who was disqualified because of their lust for power. Even in our evangelism, this is who I am going to say it to, this is who I'm not going to say it to. I have this power to decide. I will be the gatekeeper. We're not the gatekeeper. John 10 tells us who the door is. It's Christ. In the way that we serve in churches, I would like to be the person who makes the, who's in charge. Can I be the person who makes the call rather than saying, God, you've given me this ability. Let me serve you wherever you would put me. Thirst for power corrupts and hinders our purpose in God's plan. We need to seek to serve in power, not be the Lord of power. You know who the great example of this is? The Lord of power. The Lord of power, what does he choose to be? He's the Savior as he serves. Try to wrap your mind around that. Here is the one who has all the power. Here is the one who truly is the Messiah. Here is the one who is the Savior. And yet when he comes to this earth, what does he choose to do with his power? He serves. And yet in our position, we're going to think we who should be slaves and have been elevated to the position of servant, we presume to think that we should be Savior? Christ came as a servant. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper now. We're celebrating the one who took his power and used it to serve others for the sake of the mission. God gives us power that we might serve his mission. We must serve the Lord in his power. We must humbly proclaim Christ that he might be glorified. People are transformed through the word received, not miracles perceived. God's message is inclusive of any who believe, but exclusive to only those who believe. Thirst for power corrupts and hinders our purpose in God's plan. Humbly proclaim Christ that he might be glorified. Seek to serve in power, not be the Lord of power. As the worship team comes up, what we're going to do now is we're going to prepare to take the Lord's Supper.